You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Shelby, Axios, Richard, Hartman, The Sextant, Brian, Doc Lindsay, Hangman Strain, AJ, Roger the Jolly, Artemis Killmeister, Captain Crunch, Rotary Coast, MD, Lost Again, The Navigator, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Let's begin today with the actual physical realities of Captain Kidd's imprisonment in the Old Stone Jail in Boston. When we say that he was in solitary confinement, that conjures up a whole host of images that probably aren't anything like what his actual day-to-day was really like. You'll sometimes see solitary confinement called the hole. You know, a prisoner acts out and the warden says, Hey, throw him in the hole! In a place like Newgate Prison, in London, at this time, the hole was an actual hole. They dug a big hole in the ground, lined it with stone, threw an iron gate on top of it, and the only way in or out was with a rope ladder that they could pull up. That's nothing like what William Kidd's solitary confinement was, though. When you picture the old stone jail, picture kind of a big stone warehouse, maybe more of a barn. The stone walls had windows with iron bars through which the prisoners could talk to people on the outside and even get past money or food, that kind of thing. Which wasn't exactly allowed, but it was tolerated for the most part. And of course, you know, you could pass through a file or a gun, but even if you had a file or a gun, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to try to chisel your way out and hope nobody notices? It's not like you have a poster of Raquel Welch to cover it up. Or maybe you could shoot a guard, but you've only got the one bullet. Now, perpendicular to the stone walls, there were iron boards that partitioned the cells so that prisoners couldn't hand stuff back and forth and then the face of the cell was iron bars. 
That's where most of the prisoners were kept. Usually, a dozen men to a cell. It was cramped if there were enough people inside. But even that isn't what William Kidd's solitary confinement was like. His cell was in the center of the jail. There was no stone wall. There was no window to the outside. There were no wooden walls. It was just four walls of iron bars. There was no protection from the elements. If a chill air blew in, he would feel it all. There was no privacy whatsoever. Everybody could see him. When they call it solitary confinement, they mean nobody else was allowed in that cell. Which actually was pretty terrible on its own. You know, if you're in a prison, in the winter, look, it might not be too pleasant to cuddle up with a dozen or so other filthy prisoners, but... If that's what's keeping you warm at night, you're going to do it, and William Kidd had not even that small comfort. The worst of it, though, were the shackles. These big iron, kind of like handcuffs around his ankles that were chained to the floor. Even if someone could pass him something from the outside, he wouldn't be able to get to the bars of his cell to reach it. There was almost no chance that Captain Kidd could escape, however... That wasn't going to stop him or his wife from trying. This is episode 283, What Pirates? The first months of 1700 were the coldest that anyone living in Boston had ever experienced. The townspeople had to dig trenches in the snow to get from place to place, and as soon as they were done, a fresh winter storm would hit the town. If you lived outside the city proper, you were cut off from the world completely. It was the kind of winter that killed off less established colonies. Boston, though, had houses with stout walls, and if they were careful, enough firewood to last. The bigger problem was the harbor. If you had a ship in Boston Harbor, it was going to get iced in. Now that's an inconvenience, because you can't leave, but it was also a real danger to the ship. As the ice freezes around it, it's going to squeeze the hull at the waterline and maybe do serious damage. Most captains would move their ships well out of the harbor and pray and wait until spring. But what if you had pressing business in Boston? HMS Advice was a 40-gun, fourth-rate ship of the line. Do you remember way back when Captain Kidd was setting out toward the Indian Ocean off the Atlantic coast of Africa, when he was stopped by a convoy led by Commodore Thomas Warren. The captains and the Commodore invited Captain Kidd to come dine with them. That dinner happened on board the Advice. Here in February 1700, the Advice was under a Captain Robert Wynne, with 197 men on board. She sat at rest just outside Boston Harbor, what today they call Boston's Inner Harbor, just between Castle Island and Spectacle Island. The advice arrived on the 1st of February, and on the 3rd, Captain Wynne sent a messenger to Lord Bellamont. This messenger brought word that the advice was to pick Captain Kidd up and transport him to Boston, but it also carried a huge amount of correspondence. Since the Rochester had been forced to turn back about a month and a half ago, it had been some time since they had received any mail from London. So all of the letters from the Privy Council, from Parliament, from 
Bellamont's allies and his family members in England, they all arrived at the same time. Bellamont would be expected to read and write responses to most all of those. So it wasn't like the advice planned to just show up, throw Kid on the boat, and then turn around. Moreover, the weather was a serious issue. There was a real possibility that if she tried to turn around and sail for England, well, first of all, the wind was going to be contrary, but there was also a good chance of a storm. She might not make it home. Instead, the advice hunkered down to wait until the weather broke. Lord Bellamont sent that messenger back to the advice with a message for Captain Wynne. Lord Bellamont expected the captain to visit him at his house every day promptly at 7 a.m. This was a huge hassle. It really annoyed Captain Wynne. I mean, it's February in Massachusetts in the coldest weather that anybody living there had ever seen. And then there's this rich fop who carries a silver sword, a guy who literally can't get out of his own chair, and he orders you every morning to wake up before dawn, to climb into an open rowboat, make your way across frigid open water, then trudge through mounds of ice and snow to make your way to his door where finally you are going to be forced to sit there for ten hours and have him interrogate you about everything happening back in England. Then, once the sun has finally set, you're expected to go out, trudge through the ice and snow, get back in your rowboat, and make your way to your ship. It was a nightmare. When Captain Wynne finally, blessedly, was allowed to fall into his bed and pass out, he had to wake up in just a few hours' time and do it all over again. I'd be upset if that were me, and Captain Wynne was. But the governor was an earl, so there really wasn't much he could do about it. On the 6th of February, Governor Bellamont called a full session of the Councils of New England and New York. He proceeded over these types of meetings with something of an iron fist. One councilman, Judge Seawall, said, quote, There was something singular and unparliamentary in his form of proceeding a council. End quote. Basically, Bellamont would open the floor to himself, berate the councillors for about half an hour, tell them that he expected them to vote how he told them to, and then close the floor to debate. Sometimes this bullying worked, sometimes it didn't. I mean, for example, when he asked them to give him the power to execute pirates, and they said, no, there was nothing he could do. And it looked like that might happen again here on the 6th. See, Bellamont was asking for permission from the council to send the pirates currently in the Boston jail with the advice to London where they would be tried and hanged. Some of the councillors, including Judge Seawall, were hesitant to take this step. Some of them tended to be a bit more sympathetic toward pirates, and some of them, having heard Captain Kidd's explanations, didn't consider him a pirate. When Governor Bellamont put this motion to the floor, we should send the pirates to London, Judge Seawall said, What pirates? Now, he could have just been asking for clarification. Which specific pirates do you want to send to London? But to me it reads like he was asking, What pirates? I don't see any pirates in the jail. I see some legal privateers who did nothing wrong. But that could just be my interpretation. However, it does kind of have some merit, because 
Some of these counselors did not want to send Captain Kidd or any of his accomplices to London. In part, it was because they had some legitimate questions about his actual guilt in all of this, but in part it was the principle of the thing. If they just bowed down to England every time the home country told them to send a prisoner over to London for summary execution, that would set a bad precedent. It would be giving up some of what little autonomy they had. Naturally, all of this is tied into some of that burgeoning desire for independence that was currently growing in America, a desire that would spill over in about 76 years, but here in 1700 it was still on a low boil. Beyond that, the councillors from New England really didn't think it was worth it to start a fight with London over a case from New York. It was none of their business, after all. So they dropped it. Captain Kidd would be sent to England. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. According to a number of sources, the 7th of February, 1700, was the coldest day that any English-American had ever recorded in Boston. It was also the day that Sarah Kidd won her greatest victory in her bid to free her husband. The arrival of the advice really seems to have spurred her on. She had a ticking clock. And somehow, although we don't know how, she managed to convince the warden to release William Kidd from his shackles. Still in his cell, but no longer chained to the floor, Richard Zacks suggests that she may have, quote, slid a soft hand down the man's stubbled cheek. I doubt that anyone would do a favor like disobeying the governor and releasing the most wanted man in America from his shackles for a hand on his cheek, but of course there's a bit of an implication there. However, that's just speculation on Zack's part, and in the end, everyone agrees, including Zack's himself, that it was probably just a big bribe. However it happened, though, this was a huge win. It was step one if they were going to break William Kidd out of jail. 
and that was now the goal. If he got on that ship, he was in real trouble. Despite the ramifications that they would surely face, it would be much better to get him out and run away to live a new life under assumed names anywhere in the world. But here's the problem. Sarah Kidd couldn't find anybody to help her. If she could find a group of dastardly scallywags out there, I'm sure she could talk them into breaking William out of jail for a hefty price. But there just weren't any in Boston. Well, there were plenty in Boston, but they were all also in jail with Captain Kidd. Any pirates or smugglers or sea rovers of any kind, anyone who lived on their ship was not going to be hanging out in Boston when it was the coldest it had ever been in memory. They were all sitting on a beach in the Bahamas drinking mojitos at this moment. But even if there were a crew sitting around in some tavern somewhere, it's not like Sarah Kidd knew any of them. She was not some kind of pirate queen. She was a New York landowner. The problem, though, is that all of the other respectable New York landowners that she knew that might have been able to help, well, they saw her now as a pirate queen. And even if they knew better, even if they knew that wasn't who Sarah was and wasn't who William was, why would they stick their necks out to help her? It would reflect badly upon them. They might get dragged down with William and Sarah. And you know, if she's out of the game, there might be some land in New York up for auction at a very reasonable price. Sarah Kidd realized that she had no one to rely on. And we could play with some counterfactuals here. You know, if this were New York or Nassau, maybe Sarah Kidd could hire some of the women that worked down at the docks to entertain the wardens at the jail, take a couple of bottles of rum, and keep them warm on this long, cold night. But of course, this wasn't New York or Nassau. It was Boston. It was Puritan. And that type of employment was frowned upon. You know, we could come up with dozens of possibilities. Why doesn't she get a big crate of gunpowder and blow up the jail wall? But all of these have very real-world reasons that it wouldn't be practical. Maybe it would be impossible. Getting William free of his shackles was a big first step, but it was still only a first step. And Sarah Kidd was unable to take a second. He was free from his shackles for a full five days, I'm certain understanding that his wife was responsible for getting him out of those shackles and probably waiting for that next move. It must have been a very frustrating few days for both of them. Then, on that fifth day, the 13th of February, Lord Bellamont finally decided to sign the papers that would transfer custody of Captain Kidd, as well as James Kelly and Joseph Bradish, over to Captain Robert Wynne. He might have chosen that day, because the day before, the weather had finally begun to break. It had warmed up, the sun had begun to shine, and it seemed like the advice might be able to set sail. The governor signed these papers and waited for Captain Wynne to arrive at his residence, which he would do promptly at 7 a.m., as he had done every day for the past ten days. But 7 a.m. came and went, with no sign of the good captain, which was unusual. Lord Bellamont waited. He sucked down cup after cup of coffee. He smoked his pipe, and his frustration, his impatience, began to mount. 
As 8 a.m. approached, Bellamont began to suspect that something untoward may have happened. He sent a man to the jail to check up on the prisoners, just in case. A few minutes later, the man rushed back into the governor's residence. He had unnerving news. He told the governor that Captain Kidd had been released from his shackles. He was wandering around his cell freely, getting up to God knows what kind of trouble. Now, this man had, of course, seen Captain Kidd put back in his shackles, but it did seem to suggest that there may be some sort of mischief afoot. Since Captain Wynne was still nowhere to be found, Bellamont may have been picturing a, you know, a horde of pirates climbing aboard the advice and taking her as their own. He may even have been imagining a scenario in which the advice fired upon Boston, held the town hostage unless Captain Kidd were freed. Which would have been awesome, but of course Captain Kidd didn't command that kind of loyalty from anyone, much less any pirate. Because, you know, Captain Kidd really wasn't a pirate. But while that may have been the worst possible scenario, what was really happening was still pretty bad. As we said, the 12th of February was a warm day. The sun had shone and the ice had begun to melt, which is great when you're on land. But when you're out on the open water, next to the harbor, it was quite dangerous. Early on the morning of the 13th, before dawn, a lookout on the advice spotted an ice flow drifting toward the ship. But I don't want you to picture a speck of ice here. This thing was huge. It was a mile long and a full half a mile wide. This was an island rushing toward them at surprisingly high speeds. It would have been impossible to set sail and get out of the way in time. Instead, the captain ordered his men to drop the sheet anchor. That's a kind of emergency anchor that's meant to drop quickly and find purchase in an emergency. Say you're in a storm. In danger of running aground, you drop the sheet anchor and hope that it holds on. And here, in the outskirts of Boston Harbor, it worked. The sheet anchor dropped and did find purchase. But when an island hits you, any rope is going to break. The ice flow rammed into the advice. It snapped her anchor cables and pushed her. It carried the ship through the water until the advice ran aground on Spectacle Island. There were a very tense few moments on board. The ice flow crushed the ship against the shore, and it looked like it just might crack the hull, but eventually the waves carried the ice away. But here's the real danger. The ship's bottom had hit sand, but she was still standing more or less upright in the water. However, any shift could push her over onto her side, and the waves continued to beat against the hull. If the advice tipped over, and water began to fill her holds, she would never sail again. She would be wrecked forever. So the crew had to move fast. They chopped down the yards, those are the uh, horizontal spars on the mast that, you know, hold the sails in place. They used those logs to prop the ship up on the landward side, and then they shifted all the weight over to the side facing the sea. It still wasn't light enough, though, so they had to dump anything they could stand to lose. Mostly, that meant dumping the water. With all the cargo shifted and lashed down, all the weight that she could lose lost, the entire crew disembarked onto the beach. They sent a boat to Boston, and then they just kind of had to wait for high tide. 
It was several hours standing on a beach in Massachusetts in February. When high tide finally did come in, they had to trudge out into the water up to their hips and try to pull the ship free by her anchor cables. This did not work. The men heaved and pulled, but the ship was just not going to move. Then, at 4 p.m., one of the men began to scream. The rest of the crew looked around and they saw what was coming for them. Another sheet of ice, massive, was rushing right toward them. And I know it sounds a little bit comical. The ice is coming for you! But they were in real danger here. I mean, there were a couple of hundred men, probably numb from the waist down, standing in the water, stuck between an ice floe and the hull of their ship. The possibility that some of them might get trapped by the ice floe, pushed toward land and then chopped in half, was very real. So they all rushed as fast as possible out of the water. No one was chopped in half, but they'd missed high tide. Their first opportunity to free the ship had failed. As darkness began to fall, a heavy snow began to fall with it. But some of the men began to see lights in the snow. I imagine some of them thought they might be beginning to lose it, but no, they were real lights. A pair of sloops filled with a couple of hundred amazingly brave men were making their way from Boston through a maze of ice in the darkness to help these men free their ship. Now, with four hundred-odd men at his command, Captain Wynne organized them into two large groups. They marched back out into the frigid water, each group grabbed one of the anchor cables and pulled it taut, and when high tide began to rise, they heaved, and heaved harder. Some of them began to sing shanties, you know, work songs, pulling and pulling on this massive ship. Little by little, as the water rose and the men pulled, the advice began to right herself, and finally, to float. The men continued to pull, until the advice was drifting on her own back into open water. The ship would need some repairs, but she was seaworthy. So Captain Kidd and Sarah were going to be faced with the inevitable. William was going to England. Before we go today, there's something I'd like to urge you all to go check out. There's a movement that Madame Anita, one of our Commodores, brought to my attention. There's a campaign seeking a pardon for Captain Kidd. It's a real campaign. I signed their petition at pardoncaptainkidd.com, and I urge you to do the same. But really, it's a, just a fun way to engage with the history. If they actually manage to secure a pardon for Captain Kidd 300-some-odd years after his death... A lot of news outlets would pick up the story. It would get a lot of clicks on Facebook, that kind of thing. It would really, I think, get a lot of kids engaged with the topic and a lot of grown-ups. You can also pick up one of their t-shirts, The Comeback Kid. I got one, and it's great. It's got Captain Kid and a pair of dope sunglasses. So please, go check out PardonCaptainKid.com, and if you're so inclined, sign the petition. And everybody thank Madam Anita for bringing this to our attention. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, 
Everybody that has left us ratings or reviews, they really help get the show out there. And everybody that has recommended this show to your friends and family, you all make this possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, I can't recommend highly enough Ben Franklin's World. You can find it at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music, as always, was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you have not checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, you can check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. There you can get in touch with me or find links to some of our other, smaller, newer projects. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.